Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And it's Saturday, time for a vault episode. Going into the vault this time to explore the world of religion. This episode originally aired March 29th, 2016, and it is about the concept of hyper-real religion. Yeah, this is a this is a fascinating topic. It gets into areas such as uh, the flying spaghetti monster, <laughs> um, the Jedi religion, the Jedi religion. Your sad devotion to that ancient religion is yeah. no match for the power of this space station. Is that what he says? Sounds right. But okay. yeah, basically the idea of modern humans picking and choosing their religions, not only from the religions of the ancient world or or even uh, new religions that have popped up in recent decades, but just going straight to the fictional world, going to fictional religions that, uh, that, that they know are fictional and finding some sort of inspiration or worldview in them, something they can latch on to. Yeah, this is one of my favorites we've done. So uh, we hope you out there enjoyed this episode on hyper real religion. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And I want to share with you uh, a modern legend. Okay. You've probably heard this one before. It's one of the most persistent rumors of the modern age. The L. Ron Hubbard, Robert A. Heinlein bar bet. Ah, yes. You know this one, Robert. Mm-hmm. Yes. Now, I looked into it, and I couldn't find any convincing evidence that this bet ever actually took place. So it's probably just more of a legend than than a real historical account. But the legend I always heard goes something like this. You've got L. Ron Hubbard and Robert A. Heinlein, two science fiction authors of the 20th century, and they're sitting in a bar. They're, whoa, whoa, they don't walk into a bar? I guess I suppose they have to walk into the <laughs> okay, bar first okay. if they don't take hoverboards uh, or maybe they power armor stamp into the bar. OK, but anyway, they're in the bar. They're down in some brewskis. And this is probably sometime, I would guess, in the late 1940s. And they are discussing the best way to make a ton of money, because let's face it. Writing science fiction doesn't always pay amazingly. Right. And at this point in both the men's career, they are sci-fi writers. Yeah. Very much so. Uh, so Hubbard has an opinion. L. Ron Hubbard says, you know, the best strategy is really to take advantage of the common people's desire for transcendence and salvation. So he says, quote, religion, that's mm-hmm. where the real money is. And Hubbard boasts that he could invent a religion and make millions of course, Heinlein balks at this. This sounds kind of extravagant. So they make a bet. Can he do it? Can he not do it? And by the end of the century, there are at least tens of thousands of Scientologists in the world. The Church of Scientology claims uh, millions of, of adherents. Those numbers, who knows what the real numbers are, but it seems like at least tens of thousands. And Scientology is the sci-fi religion founded on the teachings of L. Ron Hubbard. Yeah, and it has official religious status in numerous countries. So even though this bet probably did not take place, like it's one of those things where, yes, it could have if you really crunch it, but there's absolutely no documentation. Yeah, there's no good evidence mm-hmm. for it. And, and in fact, we, we we probably really should emphasize that because apparently uh, there, <laughs> in the past there have been some legal actions against people who promulgate this as if it were true. Yeah. So probably not true. But why is the rumor so persistent? Everybody's heard this, right? I bet you sitting at home or sitting standing, running, wherever you are listening. I bet you've heard some version of this before, right? 
So you could chalk it up to people's just general distaste for Scientology. There, there's a lot of antipathy out there. Right. There's no shortage of Scientology criticism uh, and, and lampooning uh, on the Internet these days. Right. But you could also say that this kind of story sticks in the mind and merits repeating simply because of the sheer audacity of it. It, mm-hmm. it offends our most basic sensibilities about what religion is and is supposed to be. Creating a religion out of thin air, just on a whim, coming up with a new religion, something about it seems fiercely wrong, just nakedly perverse. Well, yeah, I, th- I think I think so. I think, uh, yeah, on one hand, it does seem like sheer audacity that somebody would just create it wholesale though of course as we'll discuss to a large extent nobody creates a religion wholesale you're building it out of existing parts it's all kind of like that first iron man suit that uh uh, that uh, (laughs) that stark builds in the first iron man film he just builds it out of all the the stuff that's laying around and then he uses that to his advantage and that's i think i would argue that that's what you see in most of these cases though the, the the particular suit of religious armor uh, changes depending on the quality of the ingredients. Yeah, and I, I would say this relates back to something we talked about in our techno-religion for the masses episodes, mm-hmm. which is that I personally think that a lot of the power we attribute to religion lies in our chronological alienation from its origins and from its contents. I mean, it comes down to sort of like what does someone want from a religion? What does one want from a, a god? They want something greater than themselves, something that stands outside of themselves. What better way than to have something that stands outside of not only your lifespan, but even your generation outside of your your, your era even? You yeah. know, it's calling to you from a distant place slash time. Some of the power comes from the mystery of its separation. That's sort of what holiness is. It, yeah. It's way less impressive if it seems to spring from the very ground we walk on from day to day. Right. And and yet all religions start somewhere. It's true. No religion can have always been ancient uh, because every religion that exists today, even the one you believe in, you would you would have to admit has an origin. It started at some point. People started believing in this thing, mm-hmm. uh, though most are probably not the result of a, a single moment of creativity, whether inspired by gambling and brewskis and whatnot. I mean, they're probably from gradual evolutions of beliefs. Right. Yeah. New ideas that suddenly get picked up by, in many cases, a charismatic individual who mm-hmm. is bringing this to people or, you know, it ties into uh, to shifts and changes uh, in uh, the structure of society, and uh, and then in our sort of, and then when you layer over the the mythic uh, uh, materials as well, you're going to throw in some miracles. You're going to throw in some uh, some fantastic occurrences, golden books falling out of the sky or emerging from the ground, right? Yeah, but this is what we want to talk about today, right? So mm-hmm. it's the beginnings of religious movements, and especially on those that draw from sources other than direct spiritual revelation. So you might have a movement that starts with some. Somebody thinks they've received a message from God or from otherworldly powers, from a supernatural agent, and then they deliver that message and found a new religion. You've got those. But we want to talk about what happens when something that everybody recognizes as a fiction or an in-joke or a prank or a fan club takes on the mantle of religion and genuine sanctity. Yeah. When does it become an actual religion? And I know some of you might be thinking, well, what does this, any of this have to do with science and the, the, the flag of science that is up there over uh, stuff to blow your mind? Well, a, a lot, actually, because uh, because most of what we're going to talk about is occurring, if not 
right now than at least in the scientific age. Mm-hmm. And I believe that, uh, that, that the, the age of science, this age of, of reason has a lot to do with the emergence of hyper real religions. Absolutely. And I think we would be remiss if we did not begin this discussion with one of the most popular jokes turned <laughs> religions of our modern age. And that is Pastafarianism. Yes. And, and I do want to just throw in real quick. This is, of course, the, the word Pastafarianism is, uh, is a play on Rastafarianism. Mm-hmm. And I do, uh, I do want to just, uh, point out that, uh, we are aware that, uh, adherents of the Rastafari faith, uh, often do not like the term Rastafarianism. So it's kind of like there's a little bit of, of insult to Rastafari, uh, adherents, uh, built into Pastafarianism. Well, may, maybe know. for that uh, for that reason, we could avoid it and just say flying spaghetti monsterism. Well, we, I think we can refer to either. <laughs> just what I just thought it was important to acknowledge that yes, uh, uh, there's. I don't think it was intentional, but there, the Pastafarianism could be deemed offensive by some out there. Certainly, and if you're already lost, we we need to back up because yeah. in in order for this to make sense, we've got to start with a brief bit of historical context, especially for those of you who live outside the United States, yeah, and aren't familiar with the school creationism controversy that's gone on in the United States. I'd say mostly in the last twenty years or so, maybe yeah. fifteen, twenty years. Uh, so in the United States, we have a constitutional doctrine of separation of church and state. And this is traditionally interpreted to say that private citizens can believe whatever they want. You can have whatever religious beliefs you want, and agents of the government can't interfere with that. But also agents of the government can't use their civil authority to punish or promote particular religious ideas. Right. And for the most part, that works pretty well, except where there's this crossover, where on one side, the science book is saying uh, there's this thing called evolution. There were these things called dinosaurs. Yeah. Uh, this is the basic timeline as a science understands it versus uh, more fundamentalist and literal interpretations of biblical tradition. Right. And this is the most common example in the United States of, of a conflict between uh, between separate uh, between the, the sort of individual beliefs of people who work for the government and the the idea that civil servants of the government shouldn't be using their power to inflict their religious beliefs on other people. Uh, so a large percent of Americans are what we would call young earth creationists. Uh, and what does that mean? Well, a Gallup poll released in June 2014 found that 42 percent of Americans said they agreed with the following statement, quote, God created human beings pretty much in their present form at one time within the last 10,000 years or so. Which is, of course, complete nonsense. Right. And if course. you're listening to this podcast, I'm just going to go ahead and assume you do not believe this. Yeah. As you could guess, this entails a rejection of biological evolution and common descent. Usually uh, pretty much all of geology, radiometric <laughs> dating, all mainstream scientific thinking about fossils and paleontology, probably a lot of astronomy and astrophysics, too. Uh, for example, the creation of the solar system and the formation of galaxies and probably plenty of other things. You could just generally say that young Earth creationism is a belief that encounters generalized difficulty when held alongside a scientific picture of our world. Yeah, it's the, the rejection of the best modern scientific understanding of how the world works and the acceptance of and the reliance upon a sort of modern uh, untangling of ancient Babylonian. Right. So but the problem is 
plenty of civil servants in the United States, especially people who might be teachers in public schools or approving curricula or textbook selection for public schools, uh, hold these beliefs themselves. And they sometimes try to promote these beliefs and their consequences in what are supposed to be secular, religiously neutral classes for all students. And this can take a lot of forms. Uh, at one extreme, it might have biology classes teaching about the Garden of Eden and Noah's Ark as an alternative to evolutionary theory. Mm -hmm. At the other end, it might be less overt than that, and it might just insist on biology classes, including materials prepared by creationists that sort of cast vague, unfounded doubts on modern biology or that uh, teach children scientifically false arguments against evolution like you know, things you've heard before, like there are no transitional fossils and stuff like mm -hmm. that. And obviously this has led to lots of social conflict, big public debates and lots of court cases. One example of such a court case occurs very close to home for us here in Cobb County, Georgia, which is includes northern suburbs of Atlanta. And on March 28th, 2002, the uh, public school officials in Cobb County approved a measure requiring biology textbooks to wear a sticker on the inside cover that has the following statement. It says, evolution is a theory, not a fact regarding the origin of living, living things. Uh, and in 2005, this was ruled unconstitutional by U.S. District Judge Clarence Cooper, who said of this ruling, quote, by denigrating evolution, the school board appears to be endorsing the well-known prevailing alternative theory, creationism or variations thereof, even though the sticker does not specifically reference the alternative theories. Uh, and this gets us back to the monster in question, the spaghetti monster. Where Where did this come from? Well, this originates with a protest, yeah, uh, a protest against the inclusion of statements like this, stickers like this in science textbooks. Like the basic idea here is, hey, if this nonsense is going to be presented as an alternative to our science, how about this nonsense? How about I just blatantly make something up just completely off the top of my head, just the, the craziest thing you can imagine? Let's put that in there as well. Yeah. And this, of course, takes us to Kansas. Yeah, to 2005, when the Kansas State Board of Education had decided to allow intelligent design, the sort of a, a moniker of creationism, uh, you, you might call it like a marketing term to make it seem more scientific, mm -hmm. like uh, to add a lexicon of scientific uh, vocabulary to uh, to creationism. And they said that they wanted to introduce this into the curriculum as an as an alternative to evolution, you know, teach both theories. Yeah. So uh, then 25-year-old physics graduate Bobby Henderson uh, wrote what is known as the Open Letter to the Kansas School Board, published online in 2005, to present his vision for religious inclusivity in the science classroom. Robert, would you like to read a select quote from the letter? I shall. Quote, I am writing you with much concern after having read of your hearing to decide whether the alternative theory of intelligent design should be taught along with the theory of evolution. Let us remember that there are multiple theories of intelligent design. I and many others around the world are of the strong belief that the universe was created by a flying spaghetti monster. Right. So throughout this letter, Henderson goes on to critique uh, and satirize the intelligent design arguments by showing how the uh, claims of flying spaghetti monsterism, though they might appear to conflict with scientists around the world, don't actually because the flying spaghetti monster reaches out with his noodly appendages <laughs> to tweak the results of experiments so that we will be tricked into believing in an evolutionary model of the old earth. 
and he goes on also to insist that when flying spaghetti monsterism is taught in science classrooms, the teacher must wear full pirate regalia. <laughs> Quote, the concise explanation for this is that he becomes angry if we don't. <laughs> yeah. So and of course, this leads to. Um, wonderful depictions of the flying spaghetti monster. Yeah. The, uh, which you've all seen before. Right. The meme very much, it started as a bit of satire, mm-hmm. uh, a joke on this uh, religious social movement that, uh, that the author of this letter opposed, but it really took on a life of its own. It became a meme. It became picked up on the internet. So there's artwork, like you said, there's, uh, it's a whole living library of self-referential humor based around this original idea of a flying spaghetti monster, including actually becoming some form of church. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting to look at the evolution of the joke. Uh, I, I mean, I'm often just taken by the the, the visual depictions because I feel like those really pick up a lot of steam. And the, 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 the spaghetti monster itself is funny looking. It kind of looks like testicles. So it's 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 inherently goofy. Yeah. It has meatballs, by the way. It's, yes. a, it's a large pile of spaghetti flying through the sky with eyes and meatballs. Yeah, generally two. And 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 yeah, to your point, like a lot of it's kind of a, a community uh, assembled uh, mythos as well. Like everyone, uh, all sorts of little bits and pieces are thrown in kind of willy nilly to create this overall uh, faith. Yeah. And it's one the, of those. The theology is not all top down. Right. It's sort of bottom up theology. Yeah. And it's it's one of those jokes that I think over the years, like when I first heard it, I was kind of like didn't get the joke. And then I got the joke. and I'm like, oh, OK, I get it. Uh, but then the joke, it's the joke just keeps going. People right. keep telling it to the point, uh, where it, it's not really that funny anymore. Yeah. But it, you know, it's kind of like having that, uh, that friend in high school who loves Monty Python so much that just they won't fit, stop. Yeah. They'll just fit a reference or half a skit into every conversation. Ooh. Like that's kind of how I feel about Pastafari. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know exactly what you mean. And also I would say that in some cases the, it evolved from a, specific satire of of teaching of young earth creationism Mm -hmm. in public schools to become a more general critique of of religion across the board which i think is not necessarily what the the author originally intended right but yeah it definitely becomes kind of a you know an an atheistic protest religion yeah um and it serves a useful purpose there i think you know it's it it continually argues hey um why do we believe in the things we believe in? Mm-hmm. You know, why is this valuable and this isn't? Um, and, you know, as a joke goes, uh, it is it it has proven to be effective, you know, in, in the way that jokes can often tear down uh, the most formidable walls in our society, but also you know, piss people off royally. Now, I can take the other side for a second and say that I can understand why some religious people would be less than impressed with this joke as mm-hmm. it exists today, because. Let's be fair. In a lot of cases, it does seem to represent a just sort of generalized critique and critique might be a generous word yeah. of of religion without much attempt to understand people's religions or doctrines and the values they provide to the people that, that hold them. Yeah, uh, it you, is. You can just look at it as a kind of shallow uh, outsider mockery. Yeah. And I and I definitely you know, I can definitely relate to to some of those feelings about it, you know, over the years, because uh, at times I have felt like uh, not only is it a joke that I maybe don't don't get or I don't find as funny. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I could also see where it's a little a little offensive, you know, because you're it's kind of like you're taking just three minutes to throw up a spaghetti monster image to 
rebuke a person's lifetime of faith, you yeah. know, to to rebuke their 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 cultural heritage in many cases. Right. But as we said, this is becoming a new heritage of its own. Yeah. And I'm I'm curious to see what the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster looks like in 20 years. Yeah, I think for the most part, for, for most people, it's it's remains at that bumper sticker level of involvement. You know, mm-hmm. it is just something you throw up on social media or stick on the back of your car. Other people have taken it uh, to to greater extremes, going in and trying to get their official, um, you know, state ID with a colander on their head, which is, of course, one of the other articles of faith right, uh, for, the, for the adherents. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, and other folks have pushed for official religious status, uh, which is is really taking it to the next level, saying not only is our joke religion jokey, but it is actually a religion or it is as real a religion as your religion. And we want the government to recognize that fact. And I think there are some governments that have recognized it, right? Yeah, uh, at least the Netherlands and New Zealand to, to, to some degree. The, the Netherlands were, that was where we saw the most recent headlines about it. And apparently they had to, they had to prove that it wasn't just a fad, that it was an actual thing that people believed in and that they had like a marriage ritual, uh, that sort of thing. So that it was, it's the kind of thing that people are invested in enough that it is, you know, potentially a part of your life. Yeah. And this leads us to the realization that a religion need not be ancient in order to be followed. Oh, uh, yeah. So uh, I, I stand by what I said earlier about a lot of the aesthetic power of religion does seem to come from its antiquity and its chronological alienation, the sort of alien holiness of the distant past. Mm-hmm. But this doesn't mean you can't create religions in the modern day that gain a following. Yeah, I mean, we've already mentioned uh, Rastafari, uh, which is uh, an Abrahamic religion uh, you know, certainly with a lot of elements that are based in deep history, but it also venerated uh, then uh, emperor of Ethiopia, Haile Selassie. Yeah. You know, and it's 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 certainly a religion I would love to to look at in greater depth uh, at some point in the future. But, yeah, you have a situation where it's it's in the past. It's it's taking place in the present. And I mean, to have your Messiah live and and die within the lifespan of the faith. Uh, and to see that sort of happen in 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 recent history, yeah, it's fascinating. Well, how about uh, how about Joseph Smith and the Latter Day Saints? Oh yeah, I mean, there's another good one. Um, its uh, origins date back to around 1830. This is a millennialist uh, religion that preached the impending second coming, uh, continuing revelations, and uh, uh, an, uh, an identity and values that I guess you could say were more grounded in the temporary setting. So yeah. you know, it's America. It's uh, there's a modern cosmology. It's a very American religion. Yeah, very if, much so. If if you don't realize this is the name, the official name of the Mormons is yes. the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, and it too, of course, <laughs> uh, sprang up around. Uh, uh, a single charismatic individual, and uh, it, it's 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 actually a very interesting religion to look at in terms of science as well. Um, in the in since it since it is uh, more of a more closely tied to our scientific age, you do find elements of it that are uh, that that conflict less with modern uh, scientific cosmology. 
uh, such as the the idea that there are other planets and that there is a potential for life on other worlds. Oh, yeah, though, even without the introduction of new holy texts, such as the Book of Mormon, mm-hmm. you could point out that lots of modern Christians have adapted their beliefs to include modern science. Oh, certainly. I mean, uh, w- when we looked at the numbers from 2014 uh, from that Gallup poll, o- only 42 percent of Americans adhered to a literal understanding of the Bible. And so th- that's obviously not even maybe that's like half of Christians or something in America. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can certainly s- still be a Christian, uh, according to me anyway. I mean, this is going to vary depending on who's who's serving you your Christianity. But, um, yeah, you can still be a Christian and not believe that there was a literal Garden of Eden. You can still look at something like Noah's Ark uh, and and real and and view it as mythology. Yeah. Without in and view it as mythology, not in the in a, in as a dismissal, but understanding the power of myth and the necessity of myth uh, in our culture. Right. Well, or you might not even put it in those terms. You might just say like, well, you know, it's a story that's part of our received tradition and I accept it as a story. But I but also I wouldn't deny what the evidence in the lab says. I mean, that would be foolish. So. So one is science and one is my religion. And, you know, you don't have to smash them together in a particle collider of my brain. Yeah. I mean, you can you can you can look at it as literature. You can look at it as mythology. If you want, you can look at it as some sort of a literal historical document. But uh, to do so is to throw out um, our modern understanding of the world. Yeah. So how about the other uh, recently created religion that we opened with talking about Scientology? Like we said, the Barbet story probably isn't true, <laughs> but Scientology certainly is a religion explicitly created in the 20th century. That's right. 1954. Um Contemporary individual focus movement, elements of science fiction, new age philosophy, and uh, psychoanalysis, though it also has historically been anti uh, psychiatry. Right. Um, and uh, I think it sort of almost uh, positions itself as an alternative to psychiatry. Yes. Yeah, I think very much so. Um, and one of them, we're not going to go in deep into all the mysteries of Scientology here, but. Uh, it essentially says that we're all alien souls called thetans that bounce around from life to life. One attempts to free oneself from this cycle and attain their true self. So it's kind of like space Buddhism. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, I, with, without getting into the other details, I could get behind the idea of some space Buddhism. I could yeah. see the appeal. In the abstract, at least. Though, as yeah. you note, it, it is a pretty divisive religion. Everybody's got an opinion on it. Yeah, it's hard to find. And, and I'm, I'm one of those people that I would love to see more just like objective down the middle coverage of Scientology. But for the most part, it's either, uh, I mean, certainly just researching online, you're going to find one voice or the other in very drastically different positions on the matter. Now, any of the the religions that we've mentioned so far, you can definitely go at them and point out at least little bits and pieces that don't match up with our scientific understanding of reality. You can say, hey, bees didn't have four legs, as we've mentioned in a previous episode. Sure. There were no New World horses prior to uh, to the, the colonial presence uh, in uh, North America. Uh, you Wait, could, hold on. How is that relevant? Um, some criticize uh, the, you know, uh, the Book of Mormon and, say, ah. and point to uh, uh, passages about horses and, and use this as a, you know, a sort of a rallying point for, oh, you're totally full of it because this thing doesn't match up with, with real life. Okay. Likewise, you can say, oh, there are no demonic space aliens. There are no, there was no Xenu, etc. 
But as we're about to discuss, there are religions or hyper religions, as they're uh, they're uh, sometimes called, in which there is definite fiction going on. Like the whole bedrock for the faith is fiction. It's Where not everybody agrees that yeah. it's fiction. Yeah, nobody's even saying, the people on the inside. Yeah, so it's not a situation where someone is having to say, "Well, you know, this one little detail about horses or bees or what have you, it doesn't match up because X, Y, and Z." They're saying, "Oh no, I fully agree with you. This is all fiction." But the thing that comes out of that fiction is real. We're talking about religions that draw inspiration from fictional narratives that don't claim to adhere to reality at all. And, right. and here we're going to get into a little bit of the work of a sort of cultural critic and sociologist named Adam Possumai. And Possumai's got a he's got a book that came out in 2005 called Religion and Popular Culture, a Hyper Real Testament. I mm -hmm. like that title. Yeah. Uh, and in this book, he he builds on some postmodern social theory. Now, don't worry, we're not going to get too into the weeds of social theory and, and postmodern criticism. But basically, here's how it goes. It says the 20th century represents a turn. From traditional cultural structures to individualized consumer experiences driven by capitalism. So just think about that for a second. It, it, oh, and he says, of course, this extends to religion. And so if you think about that, it's sort of saying that instead of having a structure like a community accountable to one another that gathers to pray and worship in the received antique tradition, mm -hmm. people consume their religion individually uh, in the same way they do their shopping and their media experiences, religion becomes a commodified, consumerized thing that you you can pick off the shelf and take home with you. And I'm not sure I totally agree, but I think there is at least a grain of truth to this. Uh, simply by looking at the aesthetics of religion in America today, you could point to, for example, I think the rise of televangelism, TV ministry networks. Uh, yeah, you can at, change the channel. If yeah, I don't agree. At home religious participation on your own time with a TV program. Mm -hmm. uh, you could also look at mega churches, which I think are a really interesting cultural phenomenon. They have huge congregations. And what's the point of the huge congregation? Well, if you wanted to look at it from this critical point of view, you could say really a huge congregation like that provides each individual churchgoer a kind of Walmart level of anonymity. Yeah. You don't have to have a personal relationship. You just go and sort of consume as another face in the crowd as a, on your own time, on your own terms. Yeah. Uh, now, of course, that. I also can be the, the very thing about a megachurch that would turn someone away is that they want to go into a church. They want to be recognized. Right. They, they want, want to be an individual. They want to be part of a community. community. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, but then also you could look at their, uh, attention grabbing multimedia experiences like, let, you know, let's watch Pastor Trent rock out with the praise band on the Jumbotron, mm -hmm. uh, which there, there's certainly plenty of that. And sometimes they've even got truly built in shopping experiences. You've got coffee shops, bookstores in the church and stuff like that. And so this is the work that I think Possumai is building on. And so Possumai, when he gets to the concept of, of hyper-real religion, he makes a comparison between trends in fantasy literature mm -hmm. and trends in religion. 
And so he starts out by looking at fantasy fiction, and he, he says he says essentially that fantasy fiction has this traditional library of tropes, styles, and contents from which it usually draws, like sword and sorcery fiction. He, right. he Possumai claims that this is based mostly on chivalric or medieval romance, like the Arthurian cycle, you know, King Arthur and those kind of stories. They, they form the the library of things which the modern fantasy author can now reach in and grab and put together in his or her own way. And so among the standard library of tropes are things like magic, uh, creatures, thieves, warriors, druids, wizards, orcs, elves. Yeah. What else? Oh, <laughs> gelatinous cubes. Yeah, all, all the standard Dungeons and Dragons uh, characters, creatures, and tropes, for sure. But then Possumai points to an interesting development in the history of fantasy, which he singles out as the 2002 video game Kingdom Hearts. Now, I've never played this. Have you? <laughs> no, but I'm I'm familiar with the uh, with the series, especially its its crossovers with like Disney uh, material. But yeah, I did not expect Kingdom yeah. Hearts to show up in, in the material. But here. this is exactly what he points out. I think it's a really interesting point. He says, "So okay, Kingdom Hearts is a video game following a very traditional fantasy plot in some ways. Mm-hmm. It has a traditional." Fantasy fantasy plot structure, there's a quest, there's a main character who has a, a sort of symbolic sword, and uh, and the main character is seeking reunification with friends who are lost. It all sounds like th- this could be Tolkien or something. But instead of having all of just the regular Dungeons and Dragons chivalry, uh, you know, the knights and the elves and the orcs and all that... It's got characters from Disney movies, like you say. So it's got characters from Aladdin and Peter Pan and Mm -hmm. 101 Dalmatians and Alice in Wonderland. And so he's looking at this as saying, huh, so when you put yourself in the fantasy mindset, Mm -hmm. you kind of have to uh, accept as real all of the tropes that are being pulled from the, the antique library of uh, medieval and fantasy tropes like wizards and stuff like that. That's the real material that you work with within the fantasy realm. But this is bringing in all this stuff where people are explicitly familiar with the origins, uh-huh. uh, Disney movies, Disney movies they saw when they were a kid, and now they're part of the fantasy library. Huh. Yeah, this is, I mean, this just makes me think about walking around the office here to how stuff works. Uh, you go by each desk and everyone has at least, it seems like one figurine right one action figure uh, some sort of uh, a pop culture comic booky character that is serving as kind of a kind of an avatar kind of an icon kind of uh, kind of a holy artifact a little god a little yeah. shrine at your desk yeah exactly i mean like i like i think about in my own uh, situation like i carry a ganesha in my pocket uh ganesha being of course the, the hindu uh, little elephant deity the remover of obstacles uh, mm-hmm. And and so, you know, I carry him around as a kind of a good, good luck token. Uh-huh. But on my desk here at work, I also have a Gamera and a Tom Servo, uh, which uh, very fine idols. Yeah. And they kind of what they kind of embody certain, you know, maybe not completely thought out ideas, but they embody oh. certain nostalgic powers and thematic powers that I kind of draw in, draw on as I work. Gamera has stuff we can all get behind. He loves all children. It's right. He's a friend of children and he he breathes fire uh, and flies. So he's, you know, he's. He's a he's a powerful yeah. force to 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 turn to. So anytime there's a bat in your vicinity that begins to emit rays, you know that you have Gamera on your side. Exactly. Yeah. 
But, you know, to what extent are all these little little creatures and little toy? I mean, they are all kind of religious icons. They're kind of the gods of the new age, right? Yeah. Uh, and so we should note about uh, Possum Eye before we continue that in the academic community, postmodern religious and cultural cr- criticism, there's been, you know, a ton of ink spilled debating the merits of Possum Eye's uh, definitions and analysis. We're not going to get into all that. We're, we're not going to get into these debates. We can just focus on the the example itself basically the yeah, idea i mean all of the, it is subjective analysis so right. it, it, there's nothing definite about any of it yeah but, but, but it's but it does it does make a lot of sense and that's why we're discussing it here but essentially the idea is creating religions inspired by source material that the religion's own adherents accept to be fiction mm-hmm. well let's run through some examples of this because i mean, i know it's if you're not familiar with this your, your brain's probably going in circles here like how do you base a religion it's one thing to say oh i get some inspiration from a gamma but how would you actually have a gamma based faith well do you mind if i talk about the jedi first talk about the jedi yeah. okay so how about Jediism? Have you have you folks heard of this? <laughs> Jediism, Jedism, or Jediism? Jedism always makes me think of Jed from Beverly Hillbillies. So. It's the religion of Jed Clampett, <laughs> yes, uh, because he 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 came across the black gold, so he must be inspired. Yes, he the God led him there. Uh, but anyway, the, no Jediism is a Star Wars inspired religion that takes after the Jedi, the Jedi Knights of the Star Wars universe, who were the heroes. I mean, I, I probably don't need to explain the Star <laughs> Wars context to you. I assume you've seen it. If not. Suffice to say, they're, you know, a quasi-mystical religious order of good guys uh, facing off against an evil empire. Well, evil in quotation marks. I don't know how evil they actually were, but... but Oh, so you've got a bone to pick there. Well, it's it's not really worth picking at this point. But. Never mind. <laughs> okay, so anyway, in my best judgment, Jedi pretty clearly began as a joke, just explicitly a joke. Mm-hmm. Uh, first example, the 2001 census phenomenon. So around the time of the year 2001, there was a widespread international email campaign urging people to list Jedi as their religion on official census forms. And it worked. It <laughs> worked. According to the BBC in the 2001 UK census, 390,127 people, which amounted to about 0.7% of the population at the time, listed their religion as some variation on Jedi on that census. Uh, Jedi or Jedi Knight, something like that. Okay. Same year, according to the Sydney Morning Herald, 70,509 Australians or about 0.37% of Australians registered as Jedi on, on the 2001 census. So at the time, I think everybody assumed this was sort of like uh, flying spaghetti monsterism. It's a joke carried out by atheists and secularists, maybe trying to point out something about the arbitrariness of people's religious beliefs. Maybe they thought they were making a point. Maybe they didn't even think they were making a point. Maybe they just thought it was funny to say I'm a Jedi yeah. instead of to say no religion or none or something. Yeah, and it's probably the kind of thing where in, in many of these cases, not a tremendous a tremendous amount of thought is not going into this. It's it's just kind of a gut reaction, uh, but it, the, the roots may run a little deeper than they're conscious of. Yeah, so that was 2001. But if you look at the website now of the Temple of the Jedi Order, <laughs> and if you listen to their spokespeople, it starts to seem less and less like a joke. Or, or even a statement in order to make a point. If you look at them now, the Jedi have beliefs. They have doctrines. They have creedal statements. And it sounds to me perhaps unsettlingly sincere. 
I don't mean unsettling as in I'm mocking them. I just mean uh, it's surprising. Yeah. So I, I want to read a couple little things from the Temple of the Jedi Order. The, these are these are statements they have. Uh, one is the Jedi Code, and there are two versions of it. I, I want to read the simplified version. The Jedi Code reads, Emotion, yet peace. Ignorance, yet knowledge. Passion, yet serenity. Chaos, yet harmony. Death, yet the Force. Okay, that sounds pleasingly mystic and and deep yeah yeah okay there's also a jedi creed believe it or not so this is their creed i am a jedi an instrument of peace where there is hatred i shall bring love where there is injury pardon where there is doubt faith where there is despair hope where there is darkness light and where there is sadness joy i am a jedi I shall never seek so much to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we're pardoned, and it is in dying that we're born to eternal life. The Force is with me always, for I am a Jedi. Okay, so this makes me instantly wonder— are we are we witnessing here the evolution of a faith or the evolution of the joke? Are we are we kind of in like the Andy Kaufman uh, period of the joke where we're just forced to feel kind of confused and maybe a little uncomfortable about where we stand uh, in bit versus reality? I don't know, because I so first of all, that creed I read there, they mm-hmm. said they claim that is actually adapted from a traditional prayer of St. Francis of Assisi. Ah, OK. Um, so that's sort of interesting that they're adapting traditional religious materials. But I also listened to an interview mm-hmm. with a spokesperson from uh, the organization, the Temple of the Jedi. And you know what? He seemed to me like a level-headed guy who was not playing a prank. In fact, he the weirdest thing was he didn't even seem like all that obsessive of a Star Wars fan. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and he so he explained that all the Jedi believe in the Force, uh, but the Jedi need not believe in like a literal physical reality of the Force as an energy field that surrounds us and binds us, though apparently you can believe in that. Mm-hmm. Instead, he made it sound like the Force can be defined however you like. It can be a physical reality. It can be a metaphor for the interconnectedness of the universe, or it can be something else entirely, pretty much whatever you want. Mm-hmm. He seemed very earnest and serious about Jediism being taken seriously as a religion, or if not a religion, as a sort of philosophy accorded the same cultural respect as a religion. Well, it's interesting, right? Because you're, I mean, what is, what is Star Wars but uh, sort of a, a rehashing and reassemblage of various uh, uh, mythic tropes, right? Yeah, and he pointed to exactly this thing. He said Star Wars doesn't exist in a vacuum. You know, it, right. it draws on traditional philosophies and religions. And so we're essentially using Star Wars as as a metaphorical way to go back to these ancient traditions. So it's kind of like, hey, I really love Star Wars. Why do I love Star Wars? And then if the answer is, well, some of these belief systems are kind of appealing to me, if you then explore the roots of those things and begin to find meaning in the roots of those things without abandoning that initial science fiction lens, by continuing to have that be a part of your your I, I'm, I'm hesitant to say worldview, but let's say your your uh, spiritual construction, mm-hmm. then you you have yourself a hyper real religion. Yeah. 
But the Star Wars universe is not the only one that has created movements like this. I think there are others that I would say chart a similar path. It looks to me and like I, I have to admit, uh, as with all these, I, I'm an outsider. So, I, you know, mm-hmm. I can't speak as a Jedi or something and I don't want to uh, diminish people's experiences in that faith or in any other faith. But what I'll say is it looks to me like it definitely started as a joke. Well, and it it and it took on a seriousness. And, and there are others like that, like, well, that's just like your opinion, man. Right. How about the dude? <laughs> that's right. Dudism is another big one. Um, I assume we also have some big Lebowski fans. I should there. hope so. Yeah. The big Lebowski, the Coen brothers, uh, w- just wonderful film. It, it didn't really do well when it came out, but it's one of those that has continued to just gain a cult following conventions and even its own hyper real religion in the form of dudism. So it's basically all boils down to the dude abides, right? Yeah. Um, It's a dude-centric philosophy and lifestyle, more or less a modern pop culture take on on Taoism. Taoism, I've heard it described also as having a lot of similarities to Zen Buddhism. Yeah, indeed. It's, you know, it's a little, it's chill. It's, uh, it's peaceful. It's, uh, it's, it's all of the positive aspects of the dude, um, Without some of his more, you know, reckless or laziness. Well, you know, one of the funny things is that the the thing about the dude is that he's chill. But throughout much of the movie, the dude is not chill. Yeah, the the dude gets a little irritated and uh, and and, and is even uh, criticized by the stranger for his uh, his vulgar language. <laughs> so it's 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 one of the, this is another great example though where you when you look at dudism, you see the 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 people who follow it or at least like to talk about it, it all does begin in that kind of bumper sticker area. Like it's fun to say, hey, what's your religion? Oh, it's dudism, you know, because I really love this movie. But you see the same thing, right? You see individuals who seem to follow the roots of it or sort of ask themselves questions. Well, if dudism were a real faith, if it were a real philosophy, what would uh, what would its tenets be? What would the what what would I need to understand? And then they sort of follow it backwards into um, you know, more historical modes of belief. Yeah. And I think this would encounter the same kind of uh, criticisms from outsiders that all these others would. People would be like, wait a second. Hold on. What do you mean? Do you really believe in Dudism? Is that really <laughs> your religion? Well, it's kind of it kind of makes me think of uh, you remember Winamp? Oh, yeah. yeah the, the old oh, yeah. Uh, like MP3 player that we all had. On right. our, on our Did you have some back. good skins? That's the thing. You had different skins, right? We all had the same program. But we use different skins that appeal to us personally. Some Did were, you have like a tool skin on Winamp? Oh, I think I had some sort of like horrible blood splattery one or something like that. It was it was nice and dark and moody, but but I I can't help but feel like we encounter something something similar with these hyper real religions that we're discussing, where the actual mode of, of beliefs, the actual mechanics, are either something old or something cobbled together from other beliefs. But it's that skin. That brings us in. That skin is unique and appeals to us. I got another one. I was trying to uh, tell Rachel last night mm-hmm. about Jediism. Yeah. My wife, Rachel, about Jediism. To convert her or, or to Jediism? Or right. To, no, no, no. Just to explain it. And okay. and she was like, oh, I bet there is this for Lord of the Rings. And and what do you know? There are, there are Tolkien-inspired religious ideas, which is very interesting to me because – I would say that in some ways Tolkien is sort of adapting Christianity to a fantasy setting. Yeah. Uh, or at least some ideas of Christianity. It's not like an explicit one-to-one metaphor, but uh, a lot of 
his messages, I think, in Lord of the Rings are Christian ones. Yeah, it's these sort of sort of vague um, Tolkien-esque neo-pagan religions. They're they're interesting because yeah, the book itself there there are often these arguments. You know, people saying, "Oh, this is a pagan work," and and it's it, they're the pagan elements are what's important here. Others are saying, "No, it's inherently a Christian work." Other people saying, "No, oh, it's a, it's a synthesis of the two. Um, and maybe all of these arguments are, are ultimately kind of silly, but you. I mean, it, it's a very popular work, and especially out of the you know the 1970s, where you saw people were re- really into Tolkien. There's a lot of uh, there's still a lot of uh, you know countercultural energy going on. It's in Led Zeppelin albums. Yeah, it's Come in on. Led Zeppelin albums, and it it has a lot of of power to it. It has a lot of um, it has a lot of depth to it. You can just go completely crazy. Uh, filling in all the details in your mind about the the world of Tolkien. We maybe don't advise that. No. Well, you can go for it if you want. Um, I mean, that's one thing I always enjoy about the, the various sci-fi and fantasy properties that, that really engage me is if there's a really rich mythos there, either one that is explicitly um, uh, laid out for you or one where there are all these holes that you can't help but fill in the details yourself. You know, we were talking about this concept of hyper-real religions, and uh, and uh, Christian Sager, our other host, brought uh, Satanism to mind. That's right. Um, and if anyone remembers uh, the Satanic Panic episode that uh, Christian and I did, uh, I guess about a year ago now, um, as we discussed in that, Satanism like never really existed. Certainly not in the way that um, that it was presented. Uh, in during the satanic panic. Right. I mean, I would say that what you have as Satanism, people who would actually claim this religion is almost explicitly an atheistic religion. Right. Yeah. It's, and generally when we talk about Satanism, uh, we're talking about Levian, uh Satanism, which was uh, comes from the Church of Satan founded 1966 by Anton LaVey. It was, you know, ultimately it's an atheistic individualist uh, philosophy. It's uh <laughs> With more than a dash of of drama, symbolism, fun, it's about messing with the squares and yeah. and putting on a you know a fun show. Well, in some ways, I I think it has a lot in common with the flying spaghetti monster is, ism in that mm-hmm. it's, it's uh, maybe more than this, but in in some ways you could think of it as a massive prank. Yes, very much so. Um, and and I think Levey I think was was pretty straightforward about that. I mean, this is a guy that came from sort of carny roots. It's a very carny. Faith and and I love it. You can't help but but get involved with the trappings of it, especially uh, as the years roll by and it becomes a part of uh, you know of an entire segment of of music. Right, you get into all this death metal that has varying degrees of satanic elements. All right, but I think it's time to turn to psychology to try to see what we can figure out about what people are actually trying to get out of these religious beliefs. It it seems fairly clear what people get out of traditional religious beliefs where there is at the core of them the assumption of a real revelation about the metaphysical nature of reality. Um, Maybe not in all of them, but in lots of them. But in, in these religious beliefs that are in some way based on what everybody agrees is fiction, what what is the goal of the the seeker of the adherent? Well, uh, one take on this comes from uh, Carol M. Cusack's "Invented Religions: Imagination, Fiction, and Faith," and she uh, posits that invented, invented religions, such as uh, the ones we're discussing here, uh, they demonstrate that what meaning hungry humans really want is a powerful narrative, particularly one in which unseen agents affect causality in our world and in our lives. Okay, so maybe saying that even if we 
don't agree that the narratives refer to a thing that's literally true. Just participation in the narrative is enough. Yeah, I mean, like the the, the fictional realm becomes the place where it is okay to dream. Uh, whereas to to dream in, in the more real world of uh, of sort of uh, you know religious history, that is uh, that's that is sometimes seen as a bit weird in some circles. Well, that relates to something that we uh, that I know we read a little bit about about why fantasy is popular these days. It actually reminds me of uh, of some uh, thoughts, some observations that R. Scott Baker uh, made. R. Scott Baker himself being a, a, a successful and, in my opinion, highly talented. Um, fantasy writer himself, uh-huh. background in uh, philosophy, and also he works a fair amount of neuroscience into his uh, in, into his creations. But uh, in uh, his uh, paper that, that published on um, science fiction and fantasy world, Why Fantasy and Why Now, um, he says that fantasy is, quote, the primary literary response to what is often called the contemporary crisis of meaning. So the idea here is that we live in an age of reason and science. We have all sorts of myth erasing answers uh, for how the world works. So so long as we don't uh, require uh, teleological answers. So this get, in other words, this gets down to, you know, we have all these answers about how, say, the solar system works, how life works. Yeah. But we don't have the whys. Right. That's right. the stuff that that is beyond science. Uh, yeah, he almost says science is essentially created too reliable of a tool for finding correct answers about reality and so reliable, in fact, that it has left us with nihilism. Yeah. Uh, now, we we don't necessarily need to agree with that perspective to say that certainly a lot of people probably feel this way, that if science is the only socially legitimate way of uh, of asserting that something is definitely true, where do you get your meaning of life from? Yeah. If science is not going to give that to you. And it can lead to a sense of kind of despair, of hopelessness, of emptiness. You know, what is life really all about? I mean, who cares if I can finally understand the the mysteries of the of quantum physics if if what it reveals is that, huh, there's no way to answer the question of the meaning of life. Yeah. So you end up turning to fantasy. Um and to a certain certain extent, science fiction, but largely we're talking about fantasy. You turn, you turn to these uh, fantastic stories uh, in which you can find, if not find that meaning for yourself, then you at least embody characters who find that meaning and world and live in a world where life and then the individual has significance. Now, I I personally probably wouldn't agree with Baker that mm-hmm. this is what uh, it, this is what is entailed by the scientific view of the world, but I can certainly see how if you do go to that conclusion, fantasy could provide a very powerful escape from it. Right. And you know, I do have to say R. Scott Baker's own work, his um, Second Apocalypse series, he he grounds these it's definitely dark fantasy, but he grounds these uh, many of these characters uh, in this in this very believable philosophical place that is at times like you it, at times you lo- you lose yourself in the story in the narrative in the world but other times he forces the reader to to really ask some troubling questions about about who we are and how we work as individuals yeah um so yeah i would say that his critique of the fantasy genre um does not apply to everything within that realm and it certainly doesn't apply to all readers back to the question, right? What do modern religious individuals want? Do so they... he, he would say maybe meaning, right? Right. He would say meaning. He would tie it into this idea. He, he coined the term the semantic apocalypse, uh, this idea that we are either at the point or we're approaching this point where we just we're just completely stupefied by the lack of, of meaning 
in our lives and in the world. But then again, I mean, I'm sure there have been some scientific studies that look into what it is that people want out of religions in general. Uh, there have, yeah, and one in particular, and again, this is when we're talking about papers and studies about religion, this is all ultimately, you know, subjective analysis. Uh, so feel free to disagree and argue with us. And, uh, but in, in this case, uh, according to Ohio State University professor Stephen Rice, author, uh, author of the 2016 book, uh, The 16 Strivings for God, he says people have 16 basic desires. I liked these. I, I like these. This was too. interesting. Yeah. Acceptance, curiosity, eating, family, <laughs> honor, idealism, independence, order, physical activity, power, romance, saving, Social contact, status, tranquility, and vengeance. And that's then he, a pretty good list. I was I trying think so, to think yeah. of things other than that. Yeah, those, I think he covered all the basics there. And you can't help but look at that list and sort of check things off in your head as you look at your own, either your own religious beliefs, your spiritualism, or your, your the fantasy that you're into. Yeah. Um, but he developed this Rice Motivation Profile that measures how much people value each of these 16 goals. And he administered it to... Uh, a uh, hundred thousand plus people. Wow. And he found that the appeal of any given religion relates to how it responds to one or more of those desires. Uh, and it competes with secular society to meet those desires. So, so think about it. In what ways can both traditional religions and hyper real religions meet many of these desires, such as, uh, well, I mean, stuff like curiosity. I can definitely see the appeal of that because yeah. one one of the things that always drew me into actual religions and continues to draw me into actual religions is the mystery and the creativity, the the interplay and narratives of these gods and heroes. Right? Yeah, it's what brings me into uh, to uh, you know reading uh, Hinduism. It brings me into reading uh, uh, you know about ancient Egypt. It brings me into reading uh, you know various fantasy novels as well. Well, I mean, in some cases, I think. This might grow out of a uh, slight disconnect between the things we need, you know, these things we strive for and desire versus what we really know is appropriate in mm -hmm. modern society, given that we've started to think out ethical issues in a secular way. I don't know if you can say that there's really a good widely agreed upon secular justification for things like a desire for honor. Yeah. And yet the ancient structures of fantasy or of traditional religions or something like that might all include concepts of honor that can sort of legitimate this desire that we have biologically, even if we can't think of a good reason to seek honor. Yeah, it makes more on something like honor often makes more sense in a simplified and highly symbolic world than it does in the, you know, the minutia of real life. Yeah. Um, you know, likewise, something like vengeance, uh, right. which made the list like vengeance is something that in your own life, like vengeance is kind of icky. Um, well, yeah, <laughs> it's a thing we all desire, but m most of us would probably agree we sort of know better than to try to get it. Right. But like a religious faith, uh, you know, you have some sort of hell doctrine in right. there. You, you, you have can the wrath of God and outsource vengeance. Yeah. You like, can say, I don't have to get revenge. Uh, something bad might happen to you outside of my control. Yeah. And, and, and likewise, we continually turn to fictional models of what vengeance might consist of. I mean, revenge tales have always been popular and will continue to be popular. Uh, and again, they often fall back on a, a simplified and highly symbolic, um, world. You know, I wonder if, uh, studies on religious experience would indicate that that hyper reality could become or is becoming the new norm 
for religious experiences. Yeah, it often reminds me of the line in Big Trouble in Little China from uh, the sorcerer Egg Shen, who talks about um, Chinese uh, uh, modes of belief and saying that it's like a salad bar that you choose. Uh, you, you take what you like and you leave the rest. Uh, yeah. in, in this case, the character was referring to Confucianism and Taoism and and uh, and and uh, and, and also Buddhism as well. Uh-huh. But but yeah, I, I find that increasingly in my own life that I do that, that I kind of take what I want from these various models, including some fictional models and and incorporate it into my sort of religious spiritual worldview. There's actually a 2015 study uh, from the University of Evansville uh, published in American Sociological Review, and it uh, took a pretty thorough look at the way Americans process religion and science. Uh, So the authors crunched data from three waves of the general social survey and found that U.S. adults hold one of three perspectives based on their knowledge and attitudes about science and religion. Now, the first two are long established, but the third is, is, according to the authors, entirely new. Uh-huh. So there's a modern perspective, a worldview that favors science over religion. And that okay. scored 36 percent. OK, right. science trumps religion. That's the, that's that version. Then there's a traditional perspective, a worldview that favors religion over science. Forty three percent, which, you know, t- <laughs> interpret that that uh, that score as you will. But then the third one is the post-secular perspective, a mm. worldview that values both science and religion, but, quote, rejects science in favor of religion when it comes to topics such as creation and evolution. And that scored 21 percent. So that is kind of the, the salad bar uh, situation in action there, right, okay. where the individual is willing to favor uh, science and religion, in fact, favor science over religion, except for those places where it becomes um, teleologically difficult, where if not overt issues of meaning uh, come into play, then at least implied um, meaning, you know, implied issues of meaning. So, you know, it's like like ultimately I think there can be a strong case to be made that what does it matter if if life evolved or if the, the hand of God shaped it. But if your interpretation sees one uh, vision, version as problematic or threatening to the overall uh, religious structure in your head, then you then in this case, you're going to favor that religious construct over the science. Yeah. Uh, and a separate question, I think, would be just what are the triggers that cause people to view these things as in conflict anyway? Like some people obviously hold both views in their heads without trouble and some people perceive a conflict. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure what makes the difference, but it seems significant. Yeah. So, yeah, so what we're, we're talking about here, the, the post-secular perspective, it's not a mere midpoint between the traditional and the modern, but rather a unique way of looking at reality through the combined lenses of science and religion. So you can think of it as a as kind of a hybrid view. And I think that the hyper-real religions that we're looking at are kind, kind of represent a hybrid view of a different, a slightly different form, uh-huh. where instead of rejecting the science that uh, that, that threatens meaning, we're going to just we're going to outsource the religion into a sort of a safe bucket into the bucket of fiction and then build from there. I think that's an interesting way of looking at it. Like we said, I mean, a lot of these people who have these beliefs, I get the sense are basically uh, non basically materialist humanists mm-hmm. like they typically have humanist values. They could sus- subscribe to the humanist manifesto 
and they typically don't believe in uh, uh, spirits or something, uh, right. anything other than the natural world. That certainly isn't the case for all of them, but that seems to be a dominant way of thinking. But like, like as we know from Buddhism and stuff like that, you need not be a supernaturalist in order to be a religious person. Right. Yeah. And there are ways of engaging. I mean, just for Buddhism on its on its own, you can take a very sort of abstract philosophical approach to Buddhism where you don't literally believe in uh, in life to life reincarnation. Right. Or you can take you can take one that is very traditional. And ultimately, you know, it's, it's all about being fearful uh, and, and responding from a place of fear in terms of what your your next in- incarnation will consist of. I had another idea based in psychology about what might explain some of this. I mean, I certainly mm-hmm. wouldn't want to say that all of it could uh, is explained by this, but it could explain some of the transition from joke religions into real religions. And it would be based in the idea of sunk costs, choice, supportive bias and post-purchase rationalization. Ah, uh, OK. So let's say you spend a lot of money on a new lawnmower. Okay, I can't imagine it happening in my case, but but let's imagine. Yeah, you've mowed the lawn a few times, and you start to worry that maybe you didn't spend your money all that well. Mm -hmm. So you start to engage in an internal conversation, which is a form of choice supportive bias, a bias towards validating the choice you already made. Uh, that's called post-purchase rationalization. You start coming up with reasons why, you know, this really was a good way to spend my money. Uh, I think I did the right thing by spending the money on this lawnmower because it could sort of lead to some unpleasant cognitive dissonance if you don't come to that conclusion. You could think, man, I really screwed up. I shouldn't have gone down this road. Hmm. So it's kind of kind of gets into the area if I read Dune three times uh, or more times than that even. Maybe it wasn't just a good book. Maybe it wasn't just a great book, but maybe it was a book that was so meaningful that it is that it achieves kind of a spiritual level. Exactly. Or in another way, uh, it could be true that let's say if you spent a lot of time and effort just carrying out a joke Mm -hmm. just on a prank religion. Let's say uh, you start spending time on dudeism because you love the Big Lebowski and because it's funny. It's funny to pretend that there's a dude religion. But after realizing how much sunk cost you've incurred in your own time and energy over a long period of time, you start seeking ways to rationalize the purchase of, of these beliefs by saying, huh, uh, you know, maybe I, if if I've spent 300 hours on dudism, was it really just a joke? Maybe it wasn't just a joke. <laughs> maybe there's really some meaning in this. And and that's not even to say that the meaning you find is invalid. If that's your method of coming to that meaning, I, I would say that uh, that uh, conclusions reached through choice supportive bias aren't necessarily untrue conclusions. I think in many cases, the time and financial investment involved here, it just forces you to double down on something that you were already inclined to support or inclined to buy into. You know, it's it's like I already thought this was a great idea. But uh, now that I've sp- I've potentially wasted this much time on it, it's definitely a great idea. One other thing I wanted to note, I was interested to see what you thought of this, is that these religions, the the hyper-real religions, especially like Jediism and Dudism, seem to be very much uh, creatures of the Internet. 
In, in fact, mm-hmm. even uh, I, I mentioned that I listened to an interview with a spokesperson of the Jedi Temple. The guy who I listened to explicitly pointed to the introduction of uh, Internet fan communities and forums in the 1990s as the thing that made the Jedi religion possible. And so that makes me wonder how the Internet has changed what's possible in terms of social movements and the, the birth of religions. Well, yeah, I mean, it, the Internet has made it possible to to find those communities of people that share your belief. You might be the only person in your small town that loves Star Wars as much as you do, mm-hmm. but the Internet allows you to find all those other individuals who are as invested. And you find the community uh, in your fandom that that one could, you know, that would pre one could previously find perhaps only in something like a religion. You're finding that religious community in your fandom. But then again, I come back to the question. I mean, I have to wonder what the evolution of this looks like over mm-hmm. a long time. Could you ever reach the point where j- there are Jediists who believe in the truth of Jediism so firmly that they would actually come to the position of the creationists we talked about at the beginning, where they would want their views taught as an alternative to modern science in schools, hmm. where they would say, you know, I, I don't just say that this is a useful framework for my life that kind of makes sense to me. I say this is how reality is, and I've got the exclusive truth. Huh. I mean, I it's hard to imagine with the Jediists of today who, like we said, seem to be just sort of like a – taking from the salad bar of interesting ideas, but who knows what would be possible in the future. Yeah, well, it seems to me it would be less of a conflict between between science and this kind of storytelling mythology, but would it be more of a conflict between mythology? So it would be more in line with a Jedi saying, hey, if you're going to teach the children about Greek mythology, uh, then and if you're going to teach them about... Uh, you know, about Hinduism or some of these other, uh, you know, modes of sort of mythological belief. And you have to teach them about our mode as well. About Obi-Wan Kenobi. Yeah, because our mode has all of those old ideas, but it's been kind of purified uh, through the lens of of modern culture. Well, I will say I I do believe Obi-Wan Kenobi is much wiser than most of the Greek gods. (laughs) He's he's, he's a very wise uh, individual. It's hard not to... Oh, I don't know. Some of his choices in the uh, the prequels may have been a little oh, bit boneheaded. I'm not even talking about that. That's okay, heretical. Okay. Heretical. Right. Okay. Yes. <laughs> Blasphemy. Robert, what's your own personal choice for hyper-real religion? Uh, well, you know. Um, like could, if, if you had to go with one. I could see myself uh, as a follower of um, Anasurambur uh, Kellis, the aspect emperor of the three seas in R. Scott Baker's Second Apocalypse Saga. Um, <laughs> okay, I don't know anything about that. It's pretty, it's pretty rich and deep, and uh, I that is one where there are segments in those books where I've I keep they come back to me. I think about little motifs that he rolls out, and uh, like some of it is as meaningful as any uh, you know actual religion, actual mythology uh-huh. in my life. Uh, likewise, the Dune universe. Hey, I am right with you yeah. there. In fact, I think some of the uh, some of the liturgical formulas of the Dune universe are absolutely useful in the real world and you don't have to buy into the reality of dune at all i'd say try the litany against fear sometime yeah if you are feeling fear say these words i must not fear fear is the mind killer fear is the little death that brings total (laughs) obliteration i will face my fear i will permit it to pass over me and through me and when it has gone past i will turn the inner eye to see the path and where the fear has gone there will be nothing only I will remain. Yeah, I mean, I have I have seriously taken some some strength and comfort 
uh, from, uh, from, from those words in, in the past. Yeah. I mean, they sort of take on the nature of a proverb, right? Yeah. Where it's not necessarily, it's not the authority of the text that gives it its power. It's self-evidently powerful. It's a, it's a piece of literature that you, you don't even need to know where it came from in order for it to be effective. Yeah, exactly. So how about you? What uh, what hyper real religion would you turn to, Joe? Well, besides that, uh, you know, I, I do love the the litany against fear. But my own personal choice for years was, uh, you know, Facebook used to ask you what your religion is. Uh-huh. And I was like, well, that's none of your business, Facebook. So I'm going to say Thulsa Doom, <laughs> right? The Temple of Set from uh, the James, from James Earl Jones in the Schwarzenegger Conan the Barbarian movie. I'm to understand Thulsa Doom is kind of different in other media, right? Yeah. But I my opinion is that he gain perfection in that film. Yeah, I yeah. He, James Earl Jones, he's the perfect Thulsa Doom. He's a great villain, but he's a very profound and literary villain. Yeah, and very uh, charismatic. What is steel compared to the hand that wields it? He he has the the whole message that flesh is stronger than steel. Because steel is just a tool, the flesh is the will. Mm-hmm. And I can get behind that. I see what he's getting at. Yeah, and plus the parties look pretty cool. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Cannibal stew, giant snakes and uh Lots of lounging around. Yeah. Well, one more thing. I mean, I I have to admit that there's there's ever so slight a temptation to some Jediism. I'm not saying I would ever be a Jediist, but I can get a little misty when I think about the fact that luminous beings are we, not this crude matter. Oh. All right. Well, there you have it. Hyper real religions. Kind of a you know an examination of of where we are in terms of uh, modern religious faith and and fandom, where we've come from, and perhaps a new way to sort of look at these these older religions as well. Of course, we want to hear from everyone else out there. Uh, do any of you guys and gals follow a hyper-real religion? Uh, do we have any uh, unitologists in the audience that want to speak up about uh, about Altman? About Church of the Subgenius. Uh, yeah, Church of the Subgenius. There are a number of, the, of big ones that we didn't we didn't even have time to get to in this podcast. So uh, we would love to hear from uh, any and all of you about that. And sincerely, if you want to let us know what you truly love about this religion and why you consider it a real faith, please share. Yeah, yeah, do so. We will we'll keep an open mind and encourage everyone else to keep an open mind about it as well. Um, in the meantime, check us out at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That is where you will find all the podcasts, the videos, blog posts, links out to our social media accounts. We are we are Blow the Mind on Facebook and Twitter. We are Stuff to Blow Your Mind on Tumblr. And if you want to get in touch with us with the feedback to this episode or any other recent episode, you can email us at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.